All right, enough of this. I want some straight answers. I want them right now. Oh, I wasn't up to anything untoward, I can assure you. You were playing the violin on Ed's roof. That's marvelous acoustics. It's the surrounding hills. I have my own home some 20 miles outside town. Well, I call it a home. It's an abandoned bear cave, actually. It's quite snug, though. Occasionally, I, I, I slip into town for supplies and scrounge a bit to eat. Wait a minute. You didn't by any chance take a honey-baked ham off our porch a couple of weeks ago, did you? Well, I do like to think my violin playing is some recompense. We got Cal Ingraham back on Northern Exposure. I didn't expect to be this excited to see him again, but I'm really happy he's back. And uh, that <laughs> the thing he says about living in a bear cave, for whatever reason, could not stop laughing. <laughs> yeah, I am really surprised by the reappearance of Cal Ingraham. Uh, for my recollection, this is a character that was introduced in season five, right? Ooh, that's a good thing to check because uh, he's been in two episodes He's been in two episodes before this. Let's see. Might Makes Right was season five. That's the that's the first one. That's the Cornary Del Jesu. And then, oh, also at the end of season five, Lovers and Mad Men. Yeah. So coming back in season six, this is, I'm pretty sure this is his last appearance. I don't think he comes back again. Oh, really? I thought they were going to make him to kind of like a Walt. Hayden figure? Yeah, well, I could be wrong. I don't know. He doesn't show up in any of the, um, any more of the, uh, like, episode descriptions on Wikipedia. If I'm just name searching, like, control F, Cal Ingraham, this -hmm. is the last time you see his name, at least in the little plot synopsis. But I don't know. Yeah, my my memory of season six isn't, uh, isn't super strong, so... Maybe he'll be back. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really interesting that a David Chase character is reoccurring all the time right here. I am, okay, well, like I, I was just about to launch into the purpose of Cal Ingraham in this episode, but before we do mm. that, <laughs> Lee, what are we talking about here? Yes, we're talking about Northern Exposure, the 1990s CBS TV series. This is the Northern Overexposure podcast. We're going to overanalyze each episode of Northern Exposure. And now in season six, we're bringing on fans of the show to talk about their thoughts of each episode. Uh, season six, a little bit rocky, you know, most fans of the show would say uh, not the greatest season, but I think we're having a good time so far, Charles, um, and I should introduce myself. I'm Lee. I've seen Northern Exposure a number of times, and as I mentioned before, season six is a little foggy because I've only seen it once, about 10 years ago. I remember the broad strokes, but a lot of stuff I have forgotten, and Charles, you're watching Northern Exposure for the first time. That's right. Uh, watching it all with fresh eyes. And, you know, while we are having a great time watching Northern Exposure Season 6, seeing how it all shakes out, recording this podcast with you, uh, I want to say, not a big fan of this episode. <laughs> just We've been doing this thing where we talk about our thoughts just up front, the broad general ideas of it. And uh, I think that for, you know, realistically, all three plot lines – not really a big fan of that. I'm not seeing how it connects. Uh, that doesn't mean like I want to go on like a negative yeah. rant about the episode, but I just wanted to express that, you know, we, we just got done recording for Real Politic. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's, I'm a little bit, a little sour in the mouth 
Mm. Compared, you're saying comparatively to that episode, like as in like I just had something sour in my mouth. Now I'm having something also sour. Oh. So it's like double whammy. <laughs> double. <laughs> so yeah, not having a great time in season six uh, with these episodes so far that we're talking about. But I do. I think. Um, I think it might have been last episode or one one of the episodes recently where I said like this is fine. This is a good like this is a fine episode of TV, but it's not like. It's not a great episode of Northern Exposure. You know, like, I think Northern Exposure can reach such heights. Oh. And uh, this is just like, you know, I mean, I, I would watch this, but, you know, if I'm thinking about it, if I'm really just trying to compare it to, you know, thinking about it as Northern Exposure, it definitely leaves you wanting a little more, I think, th- this episode specifically. Mm, I don't know, man. I feel like <laughs> e- even... Even if I was judging this for a regular show, I don't think I would fall in love with this. Well, we're going to talk about it in depth so we can find things that we like and things that we didn't like. But I guess if I had to give a rating for this episode, uh, yeah, I mean, I would say it's a fine episode of TV, but, you know, not a not a great episode of Northern Exposure. I don't see this one ranking very high in, in like, my ranking of season six episodes. I don't think it's going to be one of the best. All right. Well, talk to me about the writer and director for this episode. All right. So this is the episode titled Horns. It's season six, episode 13. Charles, this is the 100th episode of Northern Exposure. What? What? (laughs) It's not the 100th episode of our podcast because we've had like some episodes in the main feed that weren't talking about the TV show and uh, I, I don't know exactly where to track that, but that must have been a few episodes back. But this is number 100 for Northern Exposure, you know. Doesn't seem like they did anything fancy to celebrate. I mean, they certainly knew this was episode number 100. I, I guess it's just like that's where it fell in the uh, broadcast schedule. I, it could be possible that it was organized in a different order, and then they just finished this episode in this order, and this is what came to air at a certain time, but... Uh, it doesn't feel like 100 episodes, I'll be <laughs> honest, man. Oh, it feels like uh, less? Uh, yeah, significantly less. I think it's because in the early days of our podcast, like season one through two, because they were so shortened, mm-hmm. we would do like eight episodes or whatever, and then we would take like a short break, and then like we would go back in, so it, like it felt segmented rather than aligned. So I bet if we, we didn't take a break between season one and two, we just streamlined it, all 16 or 17, whatever number of episodes it was, maybe it might feel like 100 episodes. Right now, it kind of feels like we've only done like 50 in my head. I would have to say it definitely feels like we've done over 100 uh, in my in my head. But because, <laughs> well, it's because uh, you do all the heavy work. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's it. Uh, I've had people ask me like, oh, have you like, like how long has the podcast been going on? Have you recorded like over 100 episodes? I don't, I don't think they've said that specifically, but it just, I, I've had that thought recently. And in my head, I've been like, oh crap, did we miss the 100th episode and not talk about it? And I like would keep checking it. And now that we're in season six, I like would keep checking it regularly to be like, we got to say that it's the 100th episode when we get there. And then, you know, Charles, we watched it. I rewatched this episode. Didn't really remember. I can't say I remembered uh, any any uh, plot line of this episode. Um, not not a memorable episode, and yeah, not a not a very uh, it do- doesn't scream one hundred to me, you know. But uh, <laughs> but let's go ahead and talk about those credits. Like you asked me, for the director was Michael Fresco. Uh, he's directed a lot of great episodes of Northern Exposure, some of my favorites. The writer. Jeff Melvoin, of course, uh, he's written a lot of great episodes. I just want to see, does he have any more left in this season? 
Yeah, he has quite a few. And he's also credited as one of the writers of the uh, finale episode. So we'll be talking about him all the way to the end of this uh, podcast. So uh, the air date, finally, January 18th, 1995. Just another reminder, this is the Wednesday time slot. We're no longer on Monday night. We are Wednesday night, Northern Exposure, sad face emoji. (laughs) Well, we got the three plot lines that are running throughout this episode. Number one. It's the big one. You know, I, I would like to believe that it shaped something, but maybe not. Maybe, you know, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm what, so what confused right now. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> it's the plot line with Joel where he gets, uh, what's his name? Phil. I want to say it's Phil. It's from episode one. He comes back and he's oh, like, hey. Uh, Pete, Pete Gilliam. Yeah, Pete Gilliam. Go ahead. Yeah. And that's the first uh, scene. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, so, well, uh, broad strokes, um, you you have a Joel plotline right here that's going to intersect with Shelly. Then you have Phil Capra involving the entire town. And a third one, Ed with Cal Ingram. So, yeah, let's talk about the cold open right here, which is with Phil. He's coming in and he's telling Joel that you actually can't extend a contract like that. (laughs) Now, this was way too tricky for me to... uh, to Google. I didn't go to law school or anything like this. So it was very tricky for me to be like, in the state of Alaska from 1990s, was it legal to extend contract? So maybe he's entirely correct. You cannot pull a stunt like that. And that is what sets Joel free. Did you try chat GPT or whatever? I'm sure AI could have uh, helped us. Helped us I am like, I, I'm just, I, I've never actually used it. There's a part of me, just like the writer part of me. It's just like, I refuse to succumb to this, which is probably exactly how like my grandpa felt on like seatbelts before he just blew out like the car and died. <laughs> That's a joke, right? Your grandpa's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, I had to ask you that because I know you have a, a, a certain stance on uh, like AI. Um, but yeah, so it turns out that... Um, you know, Pete Gilliam, the the guy who, you know, welcomed Joel into Alaska in, in episode one in the pilot. He's back in episode 100 now uh, to announce, I guess, finally, Joel, you made it 100 episodes through. You can go back home now. You know, the man, it's kind of messed up that, um, you know, he, he uh, Pete Gilliam points out it's like technically you've been working for several months without contract I don't know. He's okay. So he says, he says the terms like technically ended back in September. So again, if we're following the chronology of this show, it's usually uh, somewhat related to real time, like, you know, when it's airing. Mm -hmm. So September to January, that's like four or five months. And they're offering a compensation check to him of $1,200. Doesn't seem very fair. Well, that just got me thinking. Didn't Joel break his contract? Mm, so maybe he owes or something. Is that what you're saying? Or, it's or, something, or like, technically, are, you saying, are you saying by going to Mananash, did he break his contract? Yeah, or, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in this episode where they're like, you're finally free. And I'm kind of like. He was already well, free. Yeah, was he, like, <laughs> he wasn't like really working in Sicily anymore. So like. How is that not the first thing that Phil <laughs> says when he like rolls up on a boat? He's like, what are you doing? Yeah. Like. <laughs> We forgot to mention that Pete, yeah, Pete's like in Mananash, like this guy who just like rolls up with a briefcase, totally out of place. <laughs> he doesn't, he doesn't say, I mean, I guess that's just to like kind of show how phony he is maybe. 
But anyway, uh, they offer this like measly compensation check and Joel just has to sign this form, um, this release that would absolve the state of Alaska of any wrongdoing. And he gets his check. And this was interesting to me. This, this, um, a lot of little moments here with Joel are question marks to me. I don't think the episode does a great job of telegraphing like what is going on with Joel here in this very first scene, you know, uh, Pete passes over that release. You just got to sign this on the dotted line. You get your compensation check. And Joel like kind of looks at him in a pondering way. It's like close-ups. We cut from a close-up on Joel to like a close-up on Pete. And he's got that very phony grin. And then it cuts back to Joel. And he's um, he's smiling now, almost like he's laughing. Like maybe he's indignant. He can't believe what's going on here. Um, but he's got a big grin and he signs the papers. So um, I don't know, like, is Joel just happy to be free? Does uh, something click in his head? We'll see, I guess, as the plot line unravels. But a lot of little moments in this episode, it was just kind of like, it felt like, oh, it's cool, Joel's here. But I wasn't connecting to him. I didn't know, like, what was going on. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. I totally feel what you're what you're saying right here because – we're led to believe through the past three episodes that Joel is at peace. He has found inner calm with himself. He accepts who he is. He is a man that has now conformed to simplicity, now living in Mananash, doing the simple things. But and now that he's presented with a new opportunity, he, he delightfully takes it, which leads us to the question of saying, like, was he going to stay here for the for like the year that was left on his contract? Or was he actually just going to live in Mananash? Because in my mind, it felt like he was going to live in Mananash. Like once the contract was over, which, I mean, we talked about it. But like, I thought it was already no. <laughs> thought, yeah. You know, I thought it was done. I thought that he was just going to live in Mananash. I didn't know that in the back of Joel's mind, he was telling himself that, hey, I'm going to accept myself. But once that like year comes around, I'm back on that airplane to New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I agree with you. I had the same thought. I was like, okay, Joel's just going to live in Mananash forever. Except I know because I've seen the series that like it doesn't end like that. So, you know, the, he can't just like, and they couldn't end the series with him just like living in Mananash without some sort of some sort of change, some sort of big send off or something. So I thought just from what we're watching so far, it just makes sense that Joel would just like live the rest of his life away from the big city, but. Yeah, maybe just this approach of Pete and the and the release, this contract here, um, the thing he has to sign. I mean, maybe that clicks something in his head. But it's again, like it's never, it's never discussed. Even like you know, like it's a mystery that I want to know the answer to, and the episode doesn't um, doesn't deliver on that mystery. I don't, I don't think so. Yeah, and, and so much it, it just like at the very end, it just um, kind of resolves to say like. I'm not ready to go back yet. I thought I was or something, but it's like, mm-hmm. I mean, well, I mean, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it, it tries to use subtext to communicate that to its audience. And we we can talk about this in the very next scene that's going to be the the catalyst, the moment for him, mm-hmm. which is when he goes to Maggie's shed and he's picking up his belongings that they didn't actually throw out. They were like, you know, we weren't too sure if you wanted them or if you're going to come back. But yeah, we still have them for you in this storage. And Joel is looking for his mixtapes. But it turns out that Shelly 
has pilfered them. Yeah, I think Joel mentioned he made like these mixtapes from for like Founders Day. I'm not really sure why, but it's just like something. I guess he's looking through all of his belongings back there, and uh, it, so- it sounds like he spent a lot of time and he had a lot of. Um, he went through a lot of effort and resources. Like people, like his dad was sending him like klezmer music on 75 rpm records and he sourced a lot of different things to make did he say like eight hours of of uh content or was it oh yeah no yeah no. significant so yeah that's gotta be a lot of tape i guess like yeah it's gotta be a lot of tapes um so he he wants this back as you mentioned shelly apparently just uh you know took them Maggie says, you know, we didn't know if you were coming back. So it was just like first come, first serve. You know, whoever wants these tapes can have them. Um, There's a couple things in this scene that I wanted to also point out. Like Joel was looking for, like Joel was noticing something. I I can't really tell what it is on the Blu-ray, but he's like, oh, look at this. Mrs. Noah Nut gave me this. And then, I don't know, Charles, you, you watch with subtitles, right? Yeah, I watch with subtitles. In the subtitles, it said, Mrs. Anku gave me this. And I wonder, I always wonder if that's like, you know, obviously someone couldn't have heard Noah Nuck and wrote Anku. So like, were they taking a transcript or taking like a um, like a script and making the subtitles out of it? Who knows? Like closed captioning maybe eventually made its way to the subtitle track. I, I don't know like what, how this originated, but I just thought that was interesting. Hmm. I don't think I've noticed any weird subtitles that egregious, like I think we've talked about it in the last episode, when they say certain Tlingit phrases, it's just spelled totally not how it sounds. But um, this is an example of just like completely switching names, I guess, in this uh, subtitle. Oh, wow. I didn't even catch that. Uh, I call like little things, whatever it's say, like aren't instead of weren't, mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah. that's not too big. Yeah. And I always wonder if like, if those mistakes are a product of like, taking an earlier draft of the script and making it, or like the shooting script is different than what they actually say on set or in the edit, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so this scene establishes Joel's like want in this episode to retrieve his tapes from Shelly. It also has a little bit um, of something going on with Maggie, which I think is maybe more concerning another plot line, the like the Sicily water plot line. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about that here or save that for a little later. Oh, uh, they all sort of kind of congregate to each other. They do. So, yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll just mention that like, you know, people want to get paired up with their respective individuals. So Maggie and Joel have a history. So Maggie wants to sleep with Joel because of what's happening with the water. Yeah. She's, uh, something's in the water. There's increasing uh, everyone's, or the women's in town, their libido is increased, their sex drive. And uh, Maggie is just kind of eyeing over Joel throughout this whole scene. She tells him that he looks good. He's he's rugged. He's got the hair, the beard. She says, "Kinda, kinda Jeremiah Johnson. It suits you. Do you know? Uh, do you know what Jeremiah Johnson is? Is that a like a? It's not like a folklore. It's like I think maybe it is. Um, but I think she's referencing the Robert Redford film Jeremiah Johnson, which I haven't seen. But Charles, I know." You've seen this gif that was taken from the movie. It's the dude that like looks at looks at you and does like the nod, like the quick nod. I don't know how to describe it. <laughs> I'll, I'll send oh, it to you. I know. What you, he kind of looks like Zach Galifianakis. 
Yeah. And then the camera pans slowly towards him and he just yeah. like does a thumbs up thing. Thumbs oh up man, that's a great, that's a certified GIF right there. <laughs> yeah. So it comes from that Jeremiah Johnson. I guess that's the titular character, the rugged, the hair and the beard. Um, we can move on, but uh, just to quickly point out some of the text in the scene, Maggie was asking Joel to stay over at her place. You know, she wants to sleep with him. But it turns out he's got a room at the Sourdough Inn. Uh, she next asks if he wants to have dinner together. And he politely declines because he's made dinner plans with Chris. And, and again, like, it should be noted that I don't think Joel's necessarily trying to avoid Maggie or anything. I think they're on pretty good terms. And he's, like, you know, really happy to see her and be here with her in this storage space or whatever. But... um but it's just not in the cards for them to be together tonight. Except I think at the very end, Maggie's like, you know, I'm going to come by after and we can talk about things and see what your plans are. Of course, we don't get that scene. I wonder if there was a deleted scene, but um, we don't really get to see that. But um, I, it, the, the purpose being here is just that Maggie um, really wants to get Joel in bed, I guess. Right. And the overall purpose for Joel in this scene is that he still has some attachment to the town of Sicily that he's not willing mm. to let go. <laughs> yeah, that's that a good is, point. You know, that's what the writers are trying to impart onto us. Uh, for the next scene, we see them in the brick where Joel is trying to get back his mixtapes from Shelley. But Shelley is reluctant and, in fact, outright refuses to give the tapes back to Joel. He <laughs> says that. You know, he he left, so rightfully, it's finders keepers, whoever arrives there. Uh, I think it's it's tough to say whether it's the water that's causing this or if this is just some sort of weird characterization that they've been having fun with in season six where characters are just not really acting like themselves. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would attribute this to the water, I guess, in my interpretation. It seems like... Uh, it seems like something is changing with Shelly. Like her hairstyles too in this episode are very different. I think it's pretty neat. And uh, also we have Holling in this scene who's like, hey, what's going on here? And Shelly's like, I'm going to handle this, Holling. Stay out of it. <laughs> like, So there's this dynamic that comes into play with the, the Sicily water plot line where I guess the, the men are acting more sensitive and the women are more aggressive Kind of, kind of very much uh, similar to like uh, Spring Break that that episode in uh, season two, episode five, where people are just getting their personalities are getting flip flopped with the uh, ice melting. Yeah, this this one just affects the entire town though, and I'll, I'll talk about it when it comes up because oh, yeah. there's a, a, little, a lot of issues that I have with it. <laughs> but returning back to this scene, Joel promises Shelley that he'll make dubs for her. Yeah, which is like. My imagination is that it's like a re-recording of the tracks that are already on it, yeah. just imparted onto a new tape. Yeah, just like a copy, um, except it's not, you know, it, it wouldn't be like um, burning a CD or anything. Like you put two tapes in, I guess you would need like a double. I don't, I'm not entirely sure what the terminology would be, but you need a tape deck with like one tape playing and the other tape recording and you just have to let it play. You know, you have to let it roll. So it would take eight hours to do, I guess, if it's eight hours of content. But um, but he he would sit there and do it. And uh, Shelley's worried about degradation. Like there's a generation of loss. I, I don't know entirely the technicality of that. Um, but it doesn't matter too much because Joel does say that like, okay, when I go back in, to New York, 
I'm going to go to the, a professional sound lab and they're going to do the duplication. Like, don't worry. It's going to be like the best quality, but even still, uh, yeah, they're, they're very stubborn. Both of them. Are you an individual that can, that really prioritizes the quality of the sound and music? Uh, yes, but I guess to a certain point, I mean, I can tell something I noticed recently was I can tell like on Spotify, um, I had some setting to where, um, basically when you're not in Wi-Fi, it streams at like a lower quality to save data. Mm -hmm. I had that setting turned on and just driving around like road trips, you know, when you get, um, in pretty poor signal, like not 5g and just like really, really shoddy signal, I could tell like the quality dipping. And then I could also tell, uh, I normally, what I do with Spotify is I'll like tracks and it downloads it to my device. Mm -hmm. So it downloads it on Wi-Fi in high quality. But if I'm streaming something on Spotify, that's how I could tell. It's like, wow, this doesn't sound as pristine. And it was because I had that setting to playback, to stream in low quality, but to download in high quality. Oh, okay. So I can tell a difference in it. I would, you know, totally hear it and prefer a higher quality. I think there are certain um, formats that I probably couldn't distinguish. Maybe other people could, but I don't know if I could distinguish the the quality. I wonder if, uh, you know, the the quality of the dub, these mixes that Joel made, I'm sure they're not, they probably made them on whatever little rinky-dink tape deck that he got in Sicily. It's not like a high-def, hi-fi system, I'm sure. So, you know, Shelly's worried about the copies being low quality. I think the masters are already like yeah, low I know. quality. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, you know how it was in YouTube in like 2005 days? We watched like a 240p video and we were like, this is pretty high def. <laughs> like you can see a lot of stuff on here. But then like now, obviously now we watch it, we're like, oh, this is a piece of crap. It's like uh, when it's kinda... you sorry, it's like when you find like that old YouTube video that you laughed at, like in 2006, you know, you love this video and you like have it saved all the way at the bottom of your favorites. You rewatch <laughs> it today and you're like, oh my God, I can't even tell. Like it's so hard to distinguish visually <laughs> what's happening. It's so bad quality. Yeah. Well, I was gonna say on terms of audio quality, I always thought that it was like it was kind of nonsense, in my opinion, on how certain companies would try to market to us on their streaming services. Like I remember, like the, like one of the big upcomers to compete against Spotify back in the day was was Tidal. I want to, I want to oh, say okay. that was it. Tidal. Yeah, yeah, it was like Jay Z's thing, and they it's they still kept. A thing. Mm-hmm. It's still a thing. Oh yeah, it's it's actually I think it's pretty popular. I know I know some people who use it. What the heck? <laughs> <laughs> but they're advertising some sort of a like lossless format, maybe. But they have that for quality. Apple Music, though. Yeah, Apple Music does it too now. I think. Yeah, I, do I, some, I just thought higher quality. I thought it was ridiculous because I, I don't know. Like, are you really willing to pay ten additional dollars? Because I remember back in the day, Tidal was advertising for like twenty dollars for mm. a sub fee for every month, something mm-hmm. like that. Spotify was like $6. I was like, can you really tell the difference that much? Like on your your generation one iPhone? Like, is that <laughs> really really that much of a difference? I don't know. Like I, I, I don't have those services, so I couldn't say, but I can tell you that I can tell like a low quality stream, like a video uploaded to YouTube sometimes too, like just music on YouTube. Mm-hmm. It's not the highest quality because someone just, you know, uploaded it to YouTube and it gets encoded through whatever video encoder. Um, There might also be for, I can't say, but for Tidal or Apple Music, maybe the higher subscription fee also accounts for like paying the artists more. 
I'm not entirely sure. I just know Spotify is terrible with paying artists. But anyway, the last thing I want to talk about in this scene before we move on is um, kind of the very beginning when Joel comes to find Shelly. He's tracking her down for the tapes, but she's like, oh, what's up, Dr. Fleischman? Uh, I heard, uh, is it true that you're bagging Alaska for the Big Apple? This is the first time it's mentioned in the episode that Joel is actually going to go to New York. I was wondering in the scene prior, it's like, so what is Joel going to do? Like he's he's going through all his old things. Like he's in Sicily now. Like what's his plan? Like, is he going back to New York? We don't ever get to see him say that. We don't ever get a scene where it's announced. It's just kind of told as if Shelly heard it off camera that um, – you know, Joel's like, all right, he's going, Dr. Fleischman's back in town, but he's heading to New York soon. Yeah, I guess news travels fast in the town of Sicily. The next time that we see them is, you know, it's kind of like a long while. It's like a good yeah. 15 minutes. And Joel is coming up to Shelley and Holling's place to get his tapes back. He says, they're mine. I paid for them. I recorded the music on them and I want them back. And they get into a fight. They're arguing back and forth between him and Shelly on who rightfully has the tapes. And in order to settle the argument, Holly just takes the tapes and throws them out the window. <laughs> such a baller move. I really like that. was like such a funny moment in this scene. He's basically has to run in between them and hold them apart. And he's kind of, you know, raising his voice now. He's like, you guys are acting like a bunch of children. You want tapes? I'll give them to you. And he grabs the yeah, he just like toss, chucks him out the window. Uh, just, you know, pro pro move there. Um, this is also the scene when Joel says to Shelly, you don't have an ethical or legal leg to stand on here. Shelly says, oh yeah? What about finders keepers? <laughs> That's mm-hmm. the rule of Sicily, it turns out. Yeah, I think that like, okay, so at this point of the episode, I think there was a lot of interesting ideas that they could have done with Joel. Like, we both acknowledge that Joel broke his contract. He went to Metanosh. He was not supposed to do that. So there is an argument to be made that, like, for the townsfolk to get their comeuppance, they can take Joel's belongings. Mm. And I think that, like, if that argument came about, it would have been way more better to watch. Because right now, from the way that it's setting up, I'm totally on Joel's side. Like, you know, if we are led to believe that it's perfectly fine for Joel to leave then like, yeah, that's a stuff. It was in his house. Like, it just got moved to a different location because they had to move somebody in. But, like, that's his stuff. But if you make the argument and say, like, nobody wasn't even supposed to move. So, like, a lot of things are in the mm-hmm. gray area. Then I think that there's merit to Shelley's argument. Now, I don't know. I just don't buy it, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm with Joel. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I'm just a little bummed that this seems like a big... This seems like a big decision for Joel, you know, moving back to New York. And the plot line in this episode that focuses on Joel's character is about tapes. Um, I mean, I, 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 I agree with you, Charles. Like, they could have tried to make it more, I don't know, personal or more, I guess they kind of do at the in the very last mm-hmm. scene when he's like, we'll, we'll get to it, but he's like burning some stuff in a, in a fire. I guess that's where we're building to, but just while watching this episode, it just feels like I, I want to hear about, you know, Joel going to New York or what's, what's happening there. I, I don't really care about these tapes right now. Right. 
Uh, I, I'm going to do two things. Okay. I'm going to talk about the final scene, but I'm going to relate it right back to what you just said right here. Because mm-hmm. I'm totally on board with what you're saying. So the very last scene with Joel is that he's burning his belongings in you know, a trash fire. And Maggie <laughs> comes up and talks to him and says, like, what are you doing? Like, this is stuff that you love. Your Armani jacket, your your golf clubs, your tapes that you were fighting so hard for. What are you doing? And then Joel says... Yeah, I, I just, you know, this stuff that ties me to the town of Sicily, I don't need it anymore. Like, I'm not, I'm not ready to go back. I want to still be in Menonash because that's where I'm at peace. Mm-hmm. And that is an okay statement to say, but I think that the best way, in my opinion, I think a great way they could have done this is that if you want to reach this conclusion of Joel staying in the town of, um, you know, town of Sicily, Menonash, whatever, and not going to New York. What they could have done was take out that Cal Ingraham plot line, so you get more time, mm-hmm. and then you have Joel team up with Doctor Capra, so they can find out what's going wrong with the town. And if you remember, Joel was the one who doesn't drink the water; he's an outsider. Mm. <laughs> so they could have had them team up. Joel could have got you know reconnect again with the town see how things are working, and then realize what he was missing and what he will miss when he goes back to New York. Then we still keep this original plotline of Chelly and the tapes, and then we bring it all back to here, and it hits that much harder. Yeah. Because now we're understanding, like, oh, Joel's having a moment. He's understanding what being a doctor in Sicily means, what it means to be a member of Sicily. But now all we really got was like two other scenes of him squabbling with Shelly and mm-hmm. suddenly he's coming to the epiphany that he wants to stay here. I love that take. I love that idea for for a redux of this episode too. So much better. And then I love that plot line in, um, I think it was real politic when Joel and Phil are golfing together. Like, why not have more episodes with them together? That seems great. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, they're like in the same room together sometimes, I want to say, like in the brick maybe. Yeah. Like... But Joel's just like there and no one's talking to him. Hold up. Like he's been back to Sicily to like trade some furs with Hauling for like a knife. Has I'm trying to think, are there, is there, am I forgetting? We're, we're, we've just watched a lot of episodes. So am I forgetting, like, is there another episode when Joel like returns to Sicily from Mananash or is this it? No. So people are, this is his first people time. People aren't like losing their mind. Ah, it just, it's, I I don't know. There's like, Joel is such an important character. I feel like they've kind of like written themselves into this hard position because like anytime we see Joel now, it has to be something important. So when it's not, it just feels like weird, right? It's like, because Joel, Joel means so much to the show and to the town. The fact that he left Sicily for Mananash definitely had a huge effect on not only him, but the all the people in town. And when he returns, like no one's really, no one's really talking to him or anything. He's, uh, there's a scene we didn't talk about. And I just keep seeing this image as I'm, as I'm ranting right now, but it's, uh, Joel is like sitting alone in the brick and he's got the tapes. He must've picked them up off the street. He's just looks very depressed looking down at the table with the tapes on it. And like Maurice walks by and like he spies Joel he sees this happening and that's when like the scene like turns to Maurice's scene which we'll get to uh, in one of the other plot lines but it does end with um Shelly kind of like picking up some tapes she's like oh what are these and someone's like oh Dr. Fleischman left those for you 
And she's like, huh, cool. So like he ends up giving the tapes to Shelly. I guess because it turns out he was going to burn. He was. It's either that or he's going to burn him anyway. Mm-hmm. So might as well. But yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking of that depressed image of Joel sitting alone in the brick, and people see him. Like Maurice sees him. Again, I'm sure there's like a a moment when like Doctor Capra and Doctor Fleischman are in the same room together, but they're not talking. It's it's weird. Yeah, how is this not coming to the attention of Doctor <laughs> Capra? He's saying like, I'm pouring over all of these huge books. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. trying to understand what could possibly be happening in this town? It's like the only other person that knows as much as you and probably more than you in terms of medicine of specifically in Sicily is right yeah, there. Go talk like, to How Joel. are you not talking to him? And I, I thought that was coming. I honestly thought we were leading up to a team up between Joel and Dr. Capra. And I was like, this is going to be awesome. This is like, this is like an Avengers moment. Let's do this. And then <laughs> it, it just, Even the ending, I'm not even completely sold on because we've already got two whole episodes. In fact, the big mushroom was the really, that was the culmination Mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. the writers trying to introduce to us, to audience, the idea that Joel is okay and he's going to be all right, just living life by himself, doesn't need any earthly possessions. And now we're just retreading the same ground, which is honestly, I mean... Kind of a theme of this episode. We're retreading a lot of the same plot lines with the water as well. Even Maggie has to be like, you know, I just want to make sure like none of this is my, like she has to be reassured by Joel stuff that already happened in The Great Mushroom, like you're saying. Well, I can at least say, you know, I wasn't super fond of the direction at the end of this plot line here, like what's going on in the story. But at least I think the actors, uh, both Janine Turnell and Rob Morrow, are playing it pretty well. You know, again, the writing's not that amazing either. It's not a very powerful or profound ending, but the acting's great. You know, the way they shot it, the feel, I'm sure like the music and, you know, Joel's like rowing away on a canoe. It like sort of feels like it should be powerful, but it, it's not, it doesn't hit me super strong. They're doing their best. Well, it did hit me in the beginning of this scene. So, Right before this scene happens, I'll have to talk about it, but Maurice smashes the pipe and he lets all that water come out. And the water is just gushing like a reservoir coming out on the right side. And then that heart cuts to Joel with the river and the river's flowing on the left side. It's more Mm -hmm. calm. It's Mm -hmm. more natural. And I was like, all right, that's pretty cool. That's like, we got some juxtaposition happening here (laughs) between water directions, the state of the water, stuff like that. And just a little logistical thing. I was not a fan of the ending because it, it seemed like Joel could have walked faster than he was rowing. He was not rowing very quickly. <laughs> it's just like, all right, I'll see you later, Maggie. And he gets in the, you know, canoe and then it like starts rowing and it cuts out to the wide and he's like two feet away. Like he's like, not yeah, it's not, like, he's not, you know, he's not rocketing. <laughs> yeah. What happened to that? Uh, they had one of those boats up, up in Mananash with the motor on it. You know, that when Phil came up to, to visit someone chartered him up with like a canoe that had a motor on it. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that's, that's that plot line with Joel. Um, Charles, I'll just confirm once more, this is not the last episode with Joel. So don't worry. I should have said that up front, but I, I guess you figured. Um, so let, let's go back to the beginning and pick up on one of the other uh, plot lines here. We got the Sicily water, which I guess is kind of like Phil Capra's investigation and what's happening to all the townsfolk. It really, it really um, encompasses a lot of different little things um, throughout the town of Sicily. 
And then the other plot line would be Ed and Cal. And I guess Phil's also in that as well. What do you think we should hop to next? Uh, let's talk about Cal, Ingram, and Ed. Yeah. Well, I say that, but unfortunately, we actually do have to start with the water plot line a little bit to get okay. into Cal Ingraham because it begins with Officer Szymanski asking for him. She shows up to Maurice's little water pipe place uh, factory. It's like a water plant, I guess. Yeah, Processing that's plant the word. Or factory. I don't even know what you would call it. Yeah. You, we, you, listener, you know what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And she is telling him that there is an escaped convict Plan of violins, looting trash cans, all signs point to Cal Ingraham. And the reason that she's reaching out to Maurice is because, well, he was his last victim. So maybe yeah. he might be in danger. That's true. Yeah. Um, Cal tried to kill Maurice. Uh, you know, he blew up Maurice's truck. If you can't remember, Cal was infatuated with Maurice's Guarneri del Jesu violin which Maurice just like kept in a safe for, you know, investment purposes and Cal wants to play it. Uh, Cal doesn't mention that violin at all in this episode, uh, though he has his own violin and is playing music in the night, looting trash cans, as uh, Szymanski says. The last little thing I have to say about this scene is probably more to do with the water plot line, but we might as well talk about it right now so we don't have to come back here again. But it's basically a moment where Szymanski reminds Maurice that their relationship is over. They don't really have those feelings anymore. I think it's refreshing that they're talking about their relationship. I think there's been a couple episodes maybe with Szymanski. And I guess it's because like maybe Maurice and Szymanski don't share a lot of screen time in the past couple episodes that she's appeared, but maybe I'm wrong. I, I just, I feel like they haven't, this hasn't come up. Their romance hasn't come up in a couple episodes, like the last few times that Szymanski has a, appeared. Does that sound about right? Uh, it, it, you're right, but it's also, it's not for like organic reasons that they're doing it because they need to set up for the water plot line. Yes. Yeah. But I'm glad that, um, I've always liked their little romance and I like that they're on again, off again. So I'm glad that, you know, because of the Sicily water plot line, which we'll get to at the end at the, as the final plot line here, um, because of that, they're able to re-explore their romance. Mm. Well, it turns out that Cal Ingraham has decided that Ed's rooftop is <laughs> the place to be because if we cut to Ed, having a good time at his own home and then he hears violin music which is diegetic it's I pretty cool was just like yeah, yeah i thought it was cool a little. part of the uh like the soundtrack he's watching like this uh this old he's watching ben-hur on tv yes and i thought it was part of that and then no it's actually cow him at the roof and he falls off and ed goes to make sure that he's okay uh, the icicles that are coming off of the rooftop, that is like, you can tell it's like rubber. <laughs> I did not notice that. I did not notice the uh, icicles being, where they're like kind of flopping around or something. Mm -hmm. I guess they, they would have to be, because uh, that could be very dangerous. I didn't think about that. Like, obviously, Cal hurts his arm or something. Like, he definitely hurt himself falling off of a roof. But those icicles could be deadly, I'm sure. Uh, I also really love that reveal of Cal. As we already described, like Ed is watching Ben-Hur and it's just this amazing score, very um, 
big and powerful, but you see Ed's attention kind of darting away from the TV. He's like, what's going on? And he pauses the movie and you can still hear the violin. And it's like, okay, the violin's coming from outside the house, you know, on top of the roof. Um, but yeah, that's our introduction to Cal. Ed runs out, um, you know, literal fiddler on the roof. I didn't think about that. Um, <laughs> Ed runs out and it, it seems that Cal's okay. Uh, he, he definitely took the brunt of the tumble, but he was able to save the violin. So um, this will lead to Cal needing to see a doctor. I think if I'm not mistaken, the next scene would be like, it's Phil and Ed going into the doctor's office like at night. Is that right? Yeah. This is where Ed tries to sneak in Cal to Dr. Cabra. And he also has to tell him that he's a wanted criminal. He's got to <laughs> do this all a little bit underneath the wire. No lights. He's like, no lights. Phil's <laughs> about to like turn the lights on. He's like, are you sure this couldn't wait until the morning? And Ed's like, no, don't turn the lights on. Don't do it. Yeah. And you know, Dr. Capra obviously is like, well, I don't want to have to like, you know, I'm abating a fugitive right here. Uh, I'm pretty sure <laughs> the guy who set John Wilkes Booth's leg after he shot Lincoln, ah. like he actually set the leg and I think he went to prison or like hanged. Whoa, what? Something I like want to actually want to know this. Can I, I wonder if yeah, a quick yeah, yeah. Google search, that's crazy. Like for treason. All right. His name was Samuel Mudd, two D's. Oh my God. Yeah. Found guilty of aiding and conspiring in a murder and he was sentenced to life imprisonment. He almost died. He, he, they were going to give him the, uh, the execution, but he, <laughs> he lived with a single vote. Wow. And like, that's actually, I mean, the reason I know this is because it comes from a West Wing episode where mm. the, you know, they talk about the ethics of doctors and whether they need to yeah. treat criminals. And then President Bartlett's wife is Abby Bartlett. She's a doctor and she says, you know, doctors have an ethical obligation to take care of their patients. It doesn't matter. Like Samuel Mudd had to set the leg. That's how it goes. Mm -hmm. So it kind of goes along with this episode where Dr. Capra, he does have to set the leg. He sees a patient. Can't be like mm -hmm. that discriminatory toward him, but he makes the <laughs> ultimatum that he has to leave town. Can no longer yeah. come back to Sicily. Yeah. Phil tells Cal, you got to, well, he's, first he's like, you got to, you should turn yourself in. You know, this is not the right thing to do. But the ultimatum finally is that, uh, all right, I'm going to do this, but you should leave Sicily like immediately. Yeah. I mean, we played the soundbite at the beginning of this episode. So you got a sense of what was happening in the scene. But I just wanted to comment. I just love how Ed has snuck Cal into the office here and Phil has no idea what's going on. And there comes a point when... Phil finally turns the lights on. He's like, okay, I need some answers right now. Like what? Like this guy plays violin on roofs. Like what, what is happening? And it's the perfect sort of like, you know, uh, newcomer to Sicily. This is just strange things that happen in Sicily. Phil fits that role perfectly. You know, I guess we could, we could also say this about the water plot line, but I just wanted to say I was excited to see Phil in this episode. I remember when he was first introduced, it was a little dull, just a little plain. And I was wondering, am I going to like this character? You know, I'm not, he's definitely no Joel. I, I would have rather had seen more Joel in this episode. And like you're saying, Charles, like maybe a mashup of the two in this episode could have been a great plot line. But um, at least for me right now, you know, we'll have to track this on like a graph, like Phil's 
Phil's hot right now. He's going, he's rising. You know, like, uh, <laughs> Phil Stock's going up. I don't dislike Phil. Yeah, Phil Stock is going up. Uh, one thing that I thought was interesting is that Phil says that he had a honey-baked ham <laughs> that was on the windowsill, and it was taken. And I'm thinking to myself, do you remember the the introduction of the Capras episode? They were having wild animals come and take yeah. their stuff. I wonder if it was cow. <laughs> that poor raccoon. Was blamed for it all. Was framed. No, I don't know. I mean, I trust Walt. He said it was like a, what did he say? Like, like a marmot or something. Mar, yeah, something. Walt maybe knows what he's talking about, but perhaps it was Cal this whole time. It it all it all makes sense. This is like Phil trying to like connect the dots, you know, like on the on the board with like the red string. It was Cal Ingraham the whole time? Uh, anyway, let's get to the next scene with Phil with Cal. There's a really funny moment. This is another one that I liked a lot um, where Marilyn walks into Phil's office. I guess he's just sitting there doing some paperwork. And Marilyn asks Phil, how's Cal? And Phil's a little taken aback. He's like, uh, who are you talking about? Do we have a patient named Cal, Marilyn? And Marilyn says, everybody knows. So I guess the whole town is in on it now. They know that Phil has been treating Cal. And um, it actually does, that does actually come up again later because the the whole town gathers around Cal later. I think that's pretty neat. But I think it's just funny that news travels fast and Phil has to say, well, if anybody asks, I took an oath, like referring to the whole, like, you know, you got to set the leg, you know, it's the Hippocratic oath, got to help someone if they're, if they're hurt. Right. That brings us to a short scene with Ed where he's watching some violins on the TV. I don't know. That's not Ben Hur, is it? No, I think this is um this is a movie. The only reason I know this is because of Moose Chick, and also um at the end of the episode, they credit you know pieces of media that they used in the episode in the end credits, and this is a movie called Humor Esque, Humor Esque. Um, but it's a really interesting visual montage here. Basically, so what's happening is in the in the scene is Ed turns on his TV. And there's this old black and white movie. And so the movie has this beautiful montage. It's like a symphony. And then we go close up on this violinist. And then we cut to a close up of this woman's eyes. And she's sort of teary eyed. And that intercuts with these crashing waves. And there's this dissolve into the violinist once again, but like in a really, really tight close up playing violin. It's kind of like melancholy, kind of sad. Yeah, I think this is where Ed realizes. I guess like the power of an audience member, like how powerful this is affecting him. Mm. So he's realizing like, oh, musicians want to play to people. Yeah. And it's inferred later that like uh, Cal was watching this. So, cause I think Ed mentions like all he does is watch like sad movies or something uh, that that's brought up at some point. So perhaps Cal, uh, have we gotten to that scene yet? There's like another scene where like, there's food, like uneaten food or half-eaten food uh, on, on Ed's table when he gets home. Oh, you know, it's actually the same scene. That's the same scene. So he walks in first and there's like half-eaten food on the table. Ed calls out Cal and no one's there and he turns on the TV. So that makes sense from a writing standpoint. They, they, they fit that. That transitions to the next scene with Ed working at Ruthann's store. And Phil comes in and talks to Ed really quickly. 
about where Cal is, what he's been up to. You know, you talked about it beforehand. He said, like, you know, Cal's kind of in a dark place. And then as soon as Officer Szymanski comes in, he just shuts up. He's like, all right, yeah. I'll, I'll get... What what is it like turkey turkey? He's like he's like hey where did you put the floss like what aisle is the floss on? Yes yeah, so he's he's there to treat Cal who is down in the basement right now. But pretty much as soon as Phil gets in there, Samansky's right behind him. So he changes his story and he's trying to act, play it cool. You know, he's like where do you where do you keep the floss? And Szymanski's there um, picking up a pack of that Sicily water, which we're going to talk about in the last plot line. Six pack of Sicily water for $1.96. I think that's like just under $4 in today's um, today's inflation, you know. Anyway, what's important about the cow plot line here, she starts to sort of interrogate Ed for a moment, but um, he doesn't let up, you know. So she's out of there and Ed shows Phil down to the basement. There's like a full-on like tunnel like carved into the brick wall down there that Cal is like sleeping in or staying in or something. Yeah, this is his home now. This is uh, <laughs> his new abode. And Phil comes in and he makes the diagnosis that Cal is actually depressed. He's doing a lot of things that would get him caught, like playing up on the roof, sneaking food from the trash can. This is all behavior that like inevitably it will catch up to you. You can't keep getting away with it. So he thinks that this is merely a symptom of something larger. Yes. He says, in my opinion, you are suffering from acute depression. He also tells Cal, you promised to leave, man. Like, what's going on? Like, you're, you're still here. Yeah, I mean, you're exhibiting signs of depression. And Cal denies it. He says, thank you for your concern, doctor, but I'm in tip-top shape. And... I think that's, I think it's like he says that and we cut to Ed or he might, it might, the camera might be on Ed as he says that. I'm not totally sure, but Ed is just kind of looking at Cal, kind of hurting, kind of upset. Um, This is, that's how the scene ends. It's just like on Ed processing this because it's clear that the text is not true. There's the subtext of something's wrong with Cal Ed um, is kind of feeling for him here. I'm trying to think like they they have somewhat of a relationship. Like there's there's a scene in I want to say it's the first time the first episode we meet Cal when Cal is like trying to buy basically the ingredients for a pipe bomb, <laughs> right? Do you remember this? Yeah. And Ed talks him through it. He's like, I, well, I think Ruth Ann says like, we, you know, we don't have that. And then Ed talks to him later. It's like, we have this and this, and they talk about art and um, how Maurice is sort of this evil patron. They talk about patronage and stuff like that. So they have sort of a connection. I guess they're, I, I always think of them, maybe it's because of this episode here that we're watching. There seems to be like a tight friendship between them or at least I don't know. There's there's some there's some sort of chemistry going on. Yeah, definitely. And I think that they could have played off of that a little bit more. Yeah. Like they got a little bit of it in the next scene, but uh I'm gonna backseat direct and say like what I thought <laughs> I would have been yeah. really cool. But let me let me set it up and then I'll propose my uh my changes. Ed's coming back to his place and he sees Cal has still not left. Cal asks Ed, you know, maybe Dr. Capron is onto something. Maybe well, one or two of his pills won't hurt. And Ed gets to the center of it and asks, well, are you depressed, Cal? And 
Cal says, I'm not too sure. And then Ed drills down further and says, well, are you lonely? And that's what really gets to the crux of the matter, where Cal is realizing that playing for the voles and the animals of the place is not a substitute for human connection. And that he, he yearns for an audience to hear him. I think that's fine and dandy and all that, but I think that would have been kind of a nice little thing is if Ed had walked into his place and Cal was playing his violin and then Ed tries to play the violin and he can't. And Ed tells him, he's like, you know, I'm not a violin player, but, uh, you know, I can still talk. And then they still talk with each other. So there's an understanding between the relationship between the performer and the audience member. And Ed knows that he can't be the performer. Mm -hmm. So he takes on the role of the audience member and says, you know, I might not be able to play the violin like you. I might not be able to emphasize with you on this manner, but I can emphasize with you as a friend, as somebody that's going to listen to you. Yeah, I like that. And again, like just something, it, maybe it's just a gut feeling, but it feels like they could be close friends. You know, I like, I like, I think that scene would also play into that, that what you're suggesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it turns out Cal thirsts for an audience he says, I've never been a social animal, but it's, as you already mentioned, Charles, it's like, it's not the same playing for the woodland creatures. You know, I can't, I can't just play to delight them. I need an audience. And he says, even when I'm playing uh, in the woods or up on the roof, even if I can't see who's listening, I know that there's someone out there, at least like one person hearing this. And to me, that's thrilling. That's what is thrilling about live performance. There's also the quote, uh, Cal says, you know, I've kind of been thinking about this, Ed, like if a violinist plays in the woods and there's no one around to hear him, does he really make a sound? And I guess it's sort of a joke because this is sort of a turn of phrase. It's like a saying that Cal is employing here, but Ed takes it literally. And he's like, uh, I guess Ed has never heard of this expression because he's like, yeah, I think it would still make a sound. Like if you had a tape recorder out there, it would still would still hear the the music that you're playing. And that's the button at the end of the scene as sort of a joke. Eh, it's fine. It wasn't wasn't that funny. It could have taken it or leave it. But I did I did love the uh that sort of quandary of if a violinist plays in the woods and no one's around to hear him, does he really make a sound? I think that there's something to be said about the tape recorder line because Joel's whole thing is about tape recorders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't think they mixed it in properly, though, yeah. <laughs> because they're kind of lying in the opposite of each other. If we're to give it a generous reading, Joel burns his tapes. These are preserved recordings from the past. So in a way, he's burning his past. Mm-hmm. You know, we all get that. In this one, Ed is saying, no, 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 no. As long as like even like a tape recorder is fulfilling because it's preserved and someone in the future might hear it. It has value mm. your past. Uh, that's what Ed is proposing, but those two ideas are dichotomous to one another. Yeah. I, I don't think that the writer got that far. I think they were just trying to make a joke out of it, but also, I mean, like it could have served dual purpose, you know, but as you're saying, maybe they, they didn't really thread it properly, um, to make that link up too well, but let's move on to the next scene with Cal, which I think is the like they're getting ready for performance. Am I right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're actually, we're following like Phil and Michelle Capra walking down the street. It's like nighttime. 
Um, there's snow everywhere, obviously. And they go into that little building. I'm pretty sure it's the same building that we saw in a past episode uh, where they have like the community playground. You know what I'm talking about? Like that big warehouse oh, brick yeah, building. Yeah, yeah. I think it's the same building. Um, at least on the outside it is. But when they get inside, there's a bunch of people seated around and Ed is making this announcement on the stage uh, saying like, okay, the program's going to shift a little bit. We're going to be playing this song instead of this piece. Um, and it's, it's clear that, you know, Cal's standing like in the background there with the violin. Cal is going to perform with all the townsfolk listening. And we get a little bit of that, you know. Um, I think we actually had David Schwartz talk about this a little bit in uh, in our interview with him. I don't know if he was talking specifically about this episode, but the fact that the actor that plays Cal is not an it's not a real violinist, but there was a time when that actor sat down with David Schwartz and you know the the person who actually performed the piece that was recorded, and they were teaching the actor, you know, how to kind of mimic it for camera. So we see a little bit of that in this scene because Cal is playing and it's, you know, it's not exactly right, but I, you know, it works well enough for TV and we hear the music and he's kind of strumming that, or what do you call that? Bowing the fiddle, mm-hmm. bowing the violin in this montage of all the different townsfolk listening. We got Phil and Michelle, for sure, like Holling and Shelley, like Ruthann's probably there. Various extras, you know, town people it's supposed to be like this kind of magical moment which I get a little bit of that, but you know, I think maybe they're maybe they're milking it a little too much. It does, doesn't sell fully, like all the way for me. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, I question the the necessity of this because the ending scene mm-hmm. of this episode is that same recording being played to the entire town because yeah. Chris puts on a recording. I was I was wondering, like, I'm pretty sure that was because he says he's playing a bootleg tape uh, on the airwaves of K Bear. Pretty sure that's Cal playing, but I was like, could it? be inferred that that's one of Joel's mixes because we also dissolve from that Mm. onto Joel paddling the canoe. But if you ask me, it's violin. Like, and Joel mentioned Klezmer. I don't know. Like I'm with you, Charles. I think it sells more like, or it reads more as like, he's got a, he's got a recording of that, that uh, performance that Cal made, but I'm sorry. Keep going. Oh no, 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 no. That's basically it. Uh, that that's the first half of that scene. Mm-hmm. And then the second half is gonna have Officer Samansky getting a report yeah. that there's violin noise. We want you to go and investigate. <laughs> she goes in and the entire place is cleared out. Clearly there's a mole in the uh, in the police department. <laughs> yeah. Someone is informing them. They have a police radio scanner or something. Maybe that's what they're yeah, Because <laughs> uh, yeah, she arrives, the whole place is empty, and it's just Ed sweeping, like sweeping up. And she's like, oh, you're working late, huh? And um, she picks up like a cup, must have been like a coffee cup or something. And she's like, you you missed this one. And she hands it to him, like some trash, you know. She she comments that the coffee, or I don't even know if it's coffee, but she comments that the cup is still warm, like whatever drink was in it. She says to him, you're an all right kid. I'd hate to see you fall in with the wrong crowd. Just think about what I'm telling you. There's this sort of mutual understanding between, well, I say this because the last episode with Cal, um, do you remember Maurice was sort of like lying to Samansky to protect Cal? Mm-hmm. And um, since then, at the beginning of this episode, she basically tells Maurice, like, I knew all along that you were like harboring him. So there's this 
unspoken understanding between Szymanski and Ed, I guess, right now that she's kind of the same thing. She's like, I, I know, Ed, that you might be harboring Cal, mm. but uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do anything. She wants him, I think she wants him to fess up, but he doesn't. Oh, maybe that's, <laughs> that works out. That's way better. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I thought that, I thought that scene was kind of wasted. Yeah. But no, I think that, what you're saying makes more sense. It's a, you know, it's an inverse. It comes right back around where she is now a little bit, you know, in the mix. She's understanding what's going down. She's like, I'm not going to arrest you, mm-hmm. but me and you both know that like it's wrong, but don't, don't go too wrong. Yeah. Don't go too far with this. And, um, yeah, I guess we're to infer that Cal goes back to his Bear cave, twenty miles outside of Sicily, <laughs> and never to return. Now, hopefully, uh, hopefully he gets himself an actual home, or you know, I don't, I don't know what would happen. I, I would believe that. Uh, I don't know. He's got to keep performing, right, to combat his his depression, or he's gonna have to start, uh, you know, doing some therapy with. I don't know. We, I, as I'm saying, I don't, I don't think we ever see this actor again in the show. So, who knows. All right, that rewinds us back to the very beginning where we're talking about the final plot line, the water plot line. So as we talked about before, there's something going on with the water. We talked about Officer Szymanski talking with Maurice, who is the person that's in charge of the entire operation. But before we even get there, we actually get a short scene with one of the, he's not an operator, he's a little bit higher up on the chain, maybe one of the main engineers. He's somebody that's working there at Sicily Water, and he's on a phone call with his wife, and he admits he knows that there's something wrong with this water, this bottled water that we're doing. There's something terribly wrong with the water. Of course, he's speaking in French, and I thought, okay, like it's like maybe Canadian French or like Quebecois or something, but I think it turns out later that this guy might actually be like... France French or whatever, because there's something like he he used to work for Perrier or something. Yeah, that was the thing that confused me because I I was thinking like, why are you making him French other than to, you know, be exotic and fresh? Yeah. And it actually ties in because uh, I'll talk about it more. Okay. But this must have been in the writer's head when he was making it about the recall on Perrier water. Mm, I see. So that actually was, he says something about the benzene uh, fiasco. So we'll get we'll get to that at that scene. Um, so that must have been an actual real real world analog there. Yeah, you mentioned this guy. His name's Bertrand. We find out later. Um, he's an engineer. It just reminded me of water engineer from a <laughs> full upright position when I was when we were like that's not a thing, right? <laughs> but I mean, totally. Like this could be he could be considered a water engineer, perhaps. Um, I also wanted to say if this scene had come before the opening title credits like this this we have the moose you know the title music and northern exposure and then we get this scene you know after commercial break or whatever we get into this if this had come first this totally feels like a cold open from x-files or something like even the music feels very much not like northern exposure it's very dramatic this guy's crying on the phone to his wife and he's like i miss you honey i miss the kids it's all in french it's very mysterious there's something terribly wrong with the water 
<laughs> yeah, I think it should have actually been the the cold open. They should have used that. Yeah, I think it makes sense as a cold open. Um, though I, I love the opening scene that we get with Pete Gillum too. That's that's so crazy. But uh, yeah, maybe it was just a little too stylized. I don't know. But I, it's a bold choice for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, that brings us into the introduction of the Waters property with Phil Capra. So Phil is taking in all sorts of patients. He sees Hayden, he sees Eugene, and there's a common thing amongst them, which is that they are having too much sex, which is a plot line we've already treaded over. <laughs> yeah, increased libido has already been a plot line. And then um, I want to say that was like two, was that two different episodes? Like I'm thinking of Spring Break, you know, season mm-hmm. two, episode five. Um, and then there was also, was there another one that was increased libido or there was like, there's a lot of flirting with that type of plot yeah. line. Because okay. I know that like Chris oh, has the a similar one. The coho wins, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, then the and then I didn't mean to cut you off, but you mentioned there's one with Chris when all the women are attracted to him. Yes. That's another thing too. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's just a very horny town. And well, we forgot to mention that the title of the episode is Horns. Um, which I always thought when I was looking over the, I was trying to remember what happens in season six. I was like, what is this episode? So I guess that's literally just referring to horniness, right? Uh, I guess. Like, what else could I that... always thought, okay. I always thought it was like locking horns with, you know, I'm like, like, isn't that like the mating call between rams or, or something? Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. I see. Like they, uh, yeah. Something like that. That's part of, part of that. Yeah. Cause it, it is interesting because it's not necessarily just libido. I mean, it, again, like they've, they're retreading this, but they add a little flavor onto it where it's like an aggressive, there's an aggression to it. There's also some, um, gender flip is, I, I forget what the term that Dr. Capra uses. I should have written it down, but there's obviously like what he's saying is like the men are acting like traditionally non-masculine roles and the women in town are being more aggressive. Yeah, that's being played up in the next scene with Dr. Capra and, and his wife, Michelle. Phil goes back to home to be with Michelle, and then afterwards, we see that Michelle is trying to knot up some flies for fly fishing, and Phil is talking about how Eugene was crying, or like Eugene's brother? I forgot the specifics of it, but I think it was Eugene's brother was crying about the upcoming wedding. Yeah, Eugene's like trying to plan a, his sister's wedding and he's so stressed about it that he started weeping right there mm, in the doctor's office. There you go. Yeah, and that was the thing that like, I didn't connect the dots until rewatching this, but apparently this is a gender flip thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. This is, okay, this is where it loses me. <laughs> it's always lost me throughout my entire life. I'm, I'm not trying to make like a huge soapbox statement, but to me... What they're attributing to on the values of masculinity is more courageous, more forward speaking, or at least just not afraid to express themselves. And what they're trying to convey on femininity is more tenderness and thoughtfulness. The thing, though, to me is that, like, you need both qualities. Mm -hmm. Why is this being segregated into one camp or another? It doesn't matter who you are. You want to be a thoughtful, kind person. You want to be a person that can express themselves and can speak up for themselves. So why is this being segregated at all? And I think that was my big, 
beef with the the whole yeah, gender ahead. yeah the whole gender um, breakdown or whatever yeah because in the town hall they're buying into that premise like it kind of sounds progressive but it, it's still within the system because. I'll talk about it more at length. Okay. But, uh, yeah. Essentially what the scene is trying to say is like, yeah, it's fine if we like swap roles, but it's like, yeah. you shouldn't even need to swap roles. You should just be having good values within yourself. That's a good point. I didn't even think about it like that. I guess we'll, we'll get to that scene. Maybe we can talk about it now um, a little bit. We'll, we'll retread it when we get there in the chronology, but, uh, but it's Chris who's basically saying, I'm kind of digging that the gender roles are being swapped right now because like, I like being able to sit in the back seat and let the women fight, fight about everything. But you're right. It's like, why, like, why does it have to be one side does one and the other side is, has to be the other way. Like it should be a confluence of all those qualities. Right. Like you don't want to be segregated to your one. You don't want to be limited, I guess. Yeah, that, I don't know. That's always been something that's, it, it just really confused me whenever they're always saying like, it's very masculine or he's very feminine. And I was like, all right, so this is like code word for like, you think he's really nice. <laughs> it's like, I'm like, what are you, <laughs> nice what are you trying great. to say? Yeah. Chris is like limiting himself in a certain way just by like taking that backseat and like sitting out of the struggle there. But yeah, so we got Phil and Michelle, little afternoon delight, Phil putting his clothes back on. And uh, just kind of, we see in this scene, Phil is figuring out what's going on. Perhaps all the women in town have an increased sex drive and something strange is happening with the men too. That's just the seed crystal of what unravels throughout the rest of this episode. I just thought about this. I'm seeing it in my notes, but Michelle's like interest in fly fishing, you know, uh, Phil's like, "You, you never fish. You don't even fish. And Michelle says, Maggie and I have been talking about it recently. So I guess like fishing is masculine too, I guess. I don't know. Like, yeah, that's they, they, code, they code a lot of things to gender. Like they say like playing basketball yes, is a male thing. <laughs> Fly fishing is a male thing. It's like that is, I mean. It's the 90s. I don't I, know I, I, if I, mean, I can I like understand. excuse it. it but. It's, 19, it's 1995. <laughs> like I, I, I sort of understand the behavior. I get it. But like, come on. It's dated. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's. It's just flat too. Like not even that it's dated. It's just flat. Uh, okay. So there's another scene directly after this that we've already talked about where Maggie brings Joel to that storage shed. And we've already kind of gone over how she's kind of hitting on him, kind of trying to see if he wants to have dinner, stay over, things like that. I think we end up figuring out later that, um, you know, we never hear what actually happened whenever she goes to meet up with him after dinner. But uh, she does mention that I think they like drink some tea or something. She's like, you know what's crazy? Like Joel's only interested in drinking tea now or something like that. Do you recall that? Oh, that could almost be a very outdated, you know, raw men thing. Because if Joel had actually drank the water, that could be a thing to be like, oh, and you know, what's also like, you know, a feminine thing, drinking tea. Yeah, I guess that was what they were trying to get at was tea is is feminine in this uh, argument. Uh, Okay, but let's move past that scene and we're going to Maurice and Barbara Szymanski. She she comes to K-Bear late at night. Maurice is in there alone, probably working on something. And she's got a bottle of that Sicily water, you know, in her hand. And she enters with the excuse that she's looking for Cal. She wants to search the premises. 
and they go into like the DJ room, you know, with the big, um, the big glass windows and she starts complimenting Maurice's haircut. She like takes off her, you know, police hat and lets her hair flow down. And she's like, let's do this like right here, right now. And Maurice is like, what? In front of the windows, like in front of everybody. (laughs) Um, So yeah, this is just a scene to show that sparks are flying again for Barbara and Maurice. um, But it's that, it's that Sicily water, that bottle that she's got with her. Right. And that scene kind of continues a little bit in the same action, but a little bit more time has passed because we now cut forward to them being in Maurice's house and they sleep again with one another. And uh, again, we're getting kind of like that, that same gender role thing that we've been seeing where Maurice is quote unquote acting more like a woman and Barbara's asking more like a man because they're going into outdated stereotypical things. Now, this is kind of stereotypical for Maurice and Barbara's relationship. Like if there wasn't the Sicily water there, it would still kind of play because I feel like that was always the that was always the disconnect between Maurice and Barbara is that they were falling in love with each other, but Maurice was always Maurice was drinking tea. That was one of the things in one of those old episodes and you know, he was doing her ironing and things like that where there was that you know gender flip i don't know if that was spring break or something else um the episode spring break or or a different episode but this seems just like par for the course with barbara and maurice's relationship but in this light of the sicily water this you know plot line now sort of takes precedent over that maybe that's what's influencing what's going on certainly maurice begins to uh, be suspicious of that later in the episode. Right. What makes it really strange is that I didn't even pick up on that until rewatching the episode. I knew that they were acting strange, but I didn't mm-hmm. realize like the roles were being completely reversed because yeah. of how yeah. outlandishly outdated it was. Mm-hmm. And then once I put myself through that filter, I was like, oh, I see what they're trying to do now. They're just trying to do like an old 1940s, 1950s. This is how men and women behave after sex. Yeah, but you're right. It's like you might not notice that, uh, you know, today just watching this episode just seemed it doesn't seem out of place necessarily. But also just knowing the characters, too, that it just seems like par for the course, like like I said, for Maurice and Barbara. But I think uh, for the context of the episode, they're trying to play it into the the Sicily water. But um, the next scene is the one when like Marilyn goes into Phil's office. There's They have a little more discussion. They're not just talking about Cal in this scene. Phil asks Marilyn if she's noticed any strange things in town, uh, like people acting strange. And Marilyn mentions that Lowell Grippo, she saw him at the wash and dry, and he never usually does his own laundry. Is that, you know, if we're talking about Maurice ironing clothes in previous episodes, is doing laundries, supposedly a feminine quality, perhaps. This is what they're uh, pointing out, I guess, in this episode. And and Phil also just points out some pretty glaring results in such a small town of Sicily. Just the past few days, there have been something like 14 cases of genital abrasion, some groin pulls, some hamstrings, some hernias, all caused uh, by aggressive sex, I guess. <laughs> so, so something's definitely like something's out of the ordinary right now. 
Right. To punctuate that, we get a short scene between Michelle and Maggie playing basketball with one another. They're just really, you know, really active. When I was watching this the first time, honestly, my thought was just like, oh, the water's just giving them like a lot of energy. <laughs> it's like I didn't, I didn't think anything of like the gendered, the gendered things. Yeah, it's 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 funny because it's it's um it's like maybe it's a hat on a hat or something because like you know we watch this episode it's like okay something's wrong with the water okay uh they're having sex way too hard we get it like the the water makes them too horny the title of the episode is horns um but they add this other little thing with like it's also but it also does something to the men and it flips their gender so yeah i think it's like too many too many ingredients to where I understand where Charles, you're watching this and you're just like, <laughs> you don't, it doesn't communicate. And I don't think, I don't think Phil explicitly says anything about gender until a little bit later. I mean, he starts to wonder about the men in town as well, but it might be that sort of like town hall meeting in the brick where they start throwing out words like gender and stuff. But in this scene, they're playing basketball I guess, as we're saying, a uh, a male activity, if if that's how they want to uh, quantify it here. And um, they take a break. They drink their Sicily water, you know, hydrate again. And Maggie is saying, like, you know, she's she's really not in a good way. And Michelle's like, well, didn't she see Fleischman last night? This is the scene where she's like, Fleischman is uh, serving tea now. She says, Fleischman's on another planet. You know what he's into? Serving tea. There's like a, a jogger who runs by and the two women sort of like ogle him and say like he has a nice butt. And, you know, instead of continuing to play basketball, Maggie decides she's going to go jogging to try to catch up to this uh, this attractive jogger who just ran by. Yeah. Well, now we get feel connecting the pieces. He's reading to his tape recorder and trying to see what's up. And this is when he realizes that, oh, it's probably it's probably the water. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's like a sign from the bubble. Yeah. So he's like sitting there and he's dictating out loud. He's like, I can't figure this out. There's no specific cause, blood tests, location, race. It, none, none of it correlates. What could it be? And he's just like sitting there in profile. And then in the background, he's got one of those like water coolers and the bubbles sort of like surface to the top, like look, look, look. And um, he's just sitting there. Like he doesn't say anything, but like we're to understand that the the gears are spinning. Maybe it's the water. Yeah. Now we get the Phil confronting Maurice uh, and Bertrand. Yeah, Bertrand. Bertrand. Bertrand Montpellier. That's yes. his last name. I guess that's a, a place in France. They start talking about what could be causing this. And Dr. Phil's theory is that it's going to be the water. And he's hoping that it's not. But he wants to conduct some experiments, double blind test. And he wants to see what's wrong. And of course, he wants to pull the water off of the shelves. Uh, I think this is the scene where Marie says, you know, this place has been tested all throughout. Like Bertrand can attest to that. And, you know, he just came from Perrier. He's trying to save his own bacon here. He's going to, you know, it's going to work double hard to make sure that everything's okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it turns out that like, that was an actual thing that happened mm. in the early 1990s. Perrier actually recalled its water in the United States after they found some benzene in its bottle. Mm. Now this is what makes it the plot line kind of interesting in a retrospective manner. Benzene is something that naturally occurs to underground mineral spring water. That's just 
something that happens. Now, benzene is also the stuff that gives your gasoline. It's, uh, you know, it's varnish. And mm. it's also what increases a risk of cancer. But you would have to drink so much Perrier to even <laughs> up your cancer dosage. Uh, let me see if I can get the quote. <laughs> the carcinogens. Yeah. So the, according to the EPA, you would have to have more than a quart every day for 50 years in order to increase it by a little bit of amount. And when I mean by a little amount, I mean one in one million. That is wow. how much you're increasing your <laughs> risk of cancer. It was a very, very small chance. So, yeah, uh, in the 1990s, that Perrier really took a PR hit right there because they were advertised as the perfect water. Mm -hmm. They said they could do everything right. So, naturally, when you advertise yourself like that, any imperfections, any impurity in your product, yeah. it's going to raise hysteria like this. Yeah, and that's crazy. Like, it, I guess it in the long term, it's not necessarily a health risk, but there is uh, some regulation there that, you know, we can't be having this benzene in the water. So, yeah, I mean, like you're saying, the name Perrier is supposed to be, I guess, the purest, you know, it's, it's a high, high standard of quality. And to have a little bit of benzene in there, it's not a good look. You know, I love Perrier. I, I never knew that about Perrier. I think all of this is really interesting because the climax of this entire plot line is Phil trying to say that the water from down below is trying to right the ship. Mm. And like it messes with our equilibrium. And to a degree, he is like, right. I don't mean like right in the literal sense. I, I mean like... There certainly is an impurity found in what we deem to be pure. So we, when we imagine like well water from the reservoir springs, we picture freshness. But in actuality, in nature, there is a little bit of this chemical that's running throughout it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that the next scene when they, when like Maurice goes to find Phil and he's like, well, I mean, there's definitely stuff that happens in between, but it will end up with Maurice going to Phil and asking like, what's going on? What is your theory with the water? And as you're saying, Charles, in fact, extremely pure water has, what does he call it? Extremely pure water is notoriously unstable, he says. Let's save that for when we get to it. But what happens next in the plot line is returning to Hayden. Now we saw him earlier because he had some genital abrasion and I think we're seeing him here now, like on a stretcher, except it's not really a stretcher. It's like a door, like people are carrying him and he's laying down on this door and they're walking him to uh, like a truck bed. He's like, I can't feel my legs. I can't feel my legs. And they lay him down in the truck bed. <laughs> they're going to take him to Anchorage um, because Dr. Capra tells him he's got like a problem with his sciatic nerve. He's got to go to the back clinic and uh, <laughs> Dr. Kaffer steps over to Marsha. We see Marsha, who is Hayden's partner here. And he basically gives her a scolding. Like, I gave you specific instructions, no intercourse for at least a week. And her rebuttal is that Hayden was on the bottom. And he's like, I don't care like what position it was. You violated doctor's orders. And this is the result. Um, I'm, of course, I'm sounding more harsh than what Phil is saying. He's always very kind, I think, and very uh, personable. But uh, he gives her some, uh, some th a little bit of scolding. Yeah, I, I get what they're trying to do in this scene. They're trying to illustrate the example of like 
this is the dangers of what happens whenever <laughs> things are out of the ordinary. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I, I, I'm going to give him a little bit of credit. Okay. I'm going to like full, full outright flame them. I don't think they're, they're outright saying that women that want to have sex cause degradation no, in no, society. No. <laughs> like, uh, but, but I, that is raised. Sorry. I want you to keep going, but I was saying that it is cool. I'm glad that they bring that up in the next scene. But but go ahead, sorry. Yeah, I mean we can we can tie this into the next scene as okay, well because yeah. they go hand in hand, and you know there's not much left to talk about on this one in a way. Yeah. On the next scene, they hold a town hall. Except they're not in the town hall; they're in the brick for whatever reason. Yeah, I don't know why they can't just. <laughs> but it's they have that place. They, like, what is that used for then? <laughs> I whatever. do think it is really funny though. At the end of the scene, how quickly they so to start the meeting. Since they're in the brick, they have to close the bar. Like Maggie's like, all right, we got to close the bar. Close the bar for right now. We're doing the meeting and hauling and makes the announcement. But it's funny at the very end how quickly they like, they end the meeting, like meeting adjourned. It's like, all right, bar's back open. They resume operations. (laughs) Like it's almost like the jukebox like turns back on or something. You know, it's like everything (laughs) like, that's the only thing I like about it. Not being in the town hall. Yeah. So what Phil is trying to say to the townsfolk is that, there is an anomaly that's happening and he's he's careful to say that like it's not the changes within that are the problem it's the fact that we're even having changes at all is mm-hmm. the problem which you know i can buy into yeah like if you were a doctor even if it was good stuff like <laughs> even if it was just like hey we all stopped having cancer like literally you'd be like all right well we should probably Let's at least like look into Let's it. Figure out, like, like, what is cancer doing? It's like hiding. It's like when's it going to strike? You know. Yeah, it's like all right. Well, we should look into this. He says, "I like the way he puts it." He says, "Mass aberrations in behavior, regardless of how benign those changes may appear, are a cause for concern." This is a very wordy way of saying what you're saying, Charles. That like, regardless of you know how insignificant these changes or um, unhurtful these changes may be, like. We should be aware that some strange shit's going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is where we talked about it earlier. Chris brings up the thing that is supported by all the townsfolk where they're like, no, it's fine that we label ourselves into these fine little compartments and slot them up into outdated <laughs> stereotypes. <laughs> he says, I say, let the women fight it out for a while. I'm digging this non-competitive groove. But <laughs> I like I like your uh, interpretation too, Charles. Like <laughs> he's like they're sliding themselves into these uh, positions. He does bring up Deborah Tannen. Um, and I thought this was very interesting. I, I did a quick wiki. She's a professor of linguistics at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. The quote he says from her is, it's like, you know, Deborah Tannen says that men view the world as a battle to be won. Women see it as a community to be preserved. And um, no, I just was looking into Deborah Tannen on Wikipedia. It's a pretty interesting article. Uh, I've never read any of her books. I had not heard of her before, but she seems like a very uh, interesting person. And I will say, maybe it's like, maybe it's just been a while. Like, I haven't seen Chris quote somebody. I don't know. Like, it's been a moment since I've seen Chris as like, as I know him in my memory. You know, like this This is seems, seems like a comfortable sort of speech for Chris to be making. We don't get enough of those uh, K-Bear monologues anymore, you know? Yeah, the only K-Bear monologue we got was the one right at the end with the violin. And before we leave the scene, I just did want to mention that 
as Phil is making this announcement in this town hall meeting, well, he calls it the Sicily syndrome. He says, in short, men are acting like women and women are acting like men. This brings some criticism from Shelly and Maggie. Shelly says, how come when men get horny, it's okay, but when women get horny, it's a disease, you know, Sicily syndrome. And of course, Phil is staying level-headed, like he's trying not to offend anybody. He's just trying to point out that there's a significant deviation from the norm, he says. And Maggie responds, and this threatens you. Um, And so, yeah, this is, I I love the sort of uh, back and forth between uh, here. And I like that that at least Shelley represents that uh, sort of side of the argument, that there's nothing wrong with the sex drive in women. But that's basically what happens in this scene Once again, I just want to shout out how hilarious it is the way the scene ends. Maggie just like starts to approach the stage before Phil is even done talking. And she's like, all right, motion to adjourn. Seconded. Let's get out of here. Chris even like howls like, woo. They're like (laughs) so hyped up. The bar is back open. Jukebox blares. We're out of there. Yeah. Next scene, we're going to have Maurice and Barbara who are... Mm -hmm. This is where Maurice makes the connection and says like, oh, it's the water that's causing this problem. Yeah, he's in the back of the car with Barbara where uh, they're scootily pooping, I guess we've called it before. Mm-hmm. Um, he he just woke up actually, he had fallen asleep and he's upset that he missed the meeting. And at first I thought it was like, okay, like Barbara's being more you know, sensitive and she's kind of wanting to do like the pillow talk thing. And Maurice is being more upset and he's like being less, um, compassionate towards her. I was like, is something happening now? Is the water effect wearing off? But that's not at all. I think I was just misreading or I don't know, for whatever reason, the scene said that to me, it was kind of miscommunicating, but it does end up with Maurice saying like, I'm just not interested in a relationship that's based on only lust. You know, I want something more. And he's kind of talking it out with her as he's doing that. He looks over and like Szymanski's just like straight chugging the uh, Sicily (laughs) water bottle. And so as you're saying, Charles, yeah, this is when he, if he was reluctant to acknowledge it before, he can't help but see what's happening as uh, she's chugging that Sicily water. So it's the next scene then when uh, Maurice walks into the brick, he sees Joel depressed with the tapes, you know, his mixtapes on the table. Maurice walks over to Phil. Yeah, so Phil's in the same room with Joel. They're not talking. Um, Maurice walks over to the table with Phil and he's like, okay, talk to me, Phil. I'll listen. What's wrong with the water? Um, Bertrand's also there with them, I should also say. Yeah, this is where Phil lays out his theory that the water is too pure. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> it, it, it does something to, like, restabilize itself in our metabolism. Mm-hmm. That's why you got to use distilled water because pure water will, like, melt through copper and melt through the lead. It'll go through everything. And then he proposes that, you know, the dinosaurs didn't die by a meteorite. <laughs> They died by the water. Well, I, I forgot to I forgot to point this out, but earlier in the episode when Maurice is talking about the water, they they were originally Maurice like originally wanted to find oil and they were drilling and they found like water. They found like a spring or a well or whatever you would call it. And it was like so far down that they could date it all the way back to like 
what do you say, like 70 million years ago, whatever, like back to the dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. So the dinosaurs have been invoked earlier in the episode. So it's not uncalled for that Phil would uh, bring them up here, but it's hilarious when he's like, you know, maybe Tyrannosaurus Rex went to the well one too many times and got himself humped to death. Just like, what? Yeah, it wasn't the meat. It's funny because he was like, maybe it wasn't the comments that wiped out the dinosaurs. Maybe it was the water. I thought he was going to say, like, maybe it was sex. Like, the dinosaurs (laughs) just having so much sex that they die. It's, I mean, even on the most generous reading of this, like, what's going on in this scene is comically offensive. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's just, I'm not, I really, I'm still wrapping my mind around it. Like, are you saying, that you need societal constructs in order to to be fine in civilization? Are you saying that too much sex is bad? Is is what they're trying? You're saying that the episode is saying too much sex is bad. Is that what you're saying? It's saying that like <laughs> the reversal of role. Okay, so like oh, I see. the best the best reading that you can get from it, which actually now that I'm saying it out loud, it's not that bad, is that <laughs> disruption of the status quo mm. is a problem, which is in and of itself, it's like, it's kind of true, it's kind of fake, you know, it's got pros and yeah, cons yeah. to it, both sides. Mm. The more worse take is saying that like, if we change the way that men are and the way that women are, society will collapse. And that's like, that's not a good take. Mm-hmm. I didn't read that, but I think that's, that is kind of what it could be saying. Yeah. I think that's what you're saying. I, I was, I was more just seeing that, like, as you're saying, the, the first part is like, Phil is just concerned with the balance being disturbed, you know, like so the things are not in the normal order is not preserved and that can be a problem. I, oh, sorry. I did want to point out he's been reading like these books. So he's been like researching this and we kind of glanced over it, but they also do in the episode. There's not a huge scientific breakdown, basically just trying to say that incredibly pure water tries to balance itself out somehow. And when we're drinking this in Sicily, that balancing happens within our own metabolism. And that's causing these effects somehow. Completely very sci-fi, very science fiction, but uh, they're they're threading the needle here somehow to make this this plot line work. Yeah, ultimately Bertrand breaks down and he says, even though I ran all these tests on it, I still felt it yeah. within myself that there was something wrong with this water, to which, you know, prompts me to ask, is like, well, what was it? Was it like a sixth sense thing or like, was the color off? Like, how? Like, how did you know? Yeah, it's interesting. It's, um, you know, this reminds, for whatever reason, that just reminded me of Zarya whenever uh, at the very end, uh, Joel's character is like, you know, I've, I'm giving up on science and we have to think about the magic of, you know, the human spirit, you know. Do you remember that like monologue that they gave? I'm like butchering it. But do you remember that monologue at the end of Zarya? Ah, uh, vaguely. Where he's like, there's something about the magic of the human spirit that we can't put underneath a microscope, you know. And I'm just thinking of this because Bertrand's like, he did all these scientific tests but in the end, it was in his heart that he knew that something was wrong. And he was crying on the phone to his wife. You know, maybe that was an effect of the Sicily water. Uh, who knows? Um, Maurice ultimately decides to cap the well. He's going to recall the water immediately. The The next time we see him, you kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier, but there's a scene where Maurice like walks around. He's basically alone at his like water plant, you know, with the, they've got like tanks and 
different machinery and stuff around. He picks up a sledgehammer and walks over to one of the faucets, smashes it, and we got the water rushing out. I guess the idea being that, I don't know, tell me if this makes sense. Um, The idea might be like he wants to like spend all that water rather than like leave it underground for someone else to get later. He's like, I'm going to just like spin this out. No one will ever get this water again. Uh, yeah, I can totally see that. I read it as the water that's already in the tank Mm -hmm. is being spilled out. Yeah. Like the one that's like underground, like they're not still tapping underground. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Cause this is just like a tank. This is just a, a container. Yeah. I thought it was just letting loose on the container. Cause he ends up, I think he does say like he ends up, being able to sell some of the tanks, so it's not a complete loss. But um, why? Why does he? Uh, why does he smash it with the? Why does he smash it with a sledgehammer? I don't know. It's more flashy. <laughs> <laughs> just more. Just looks cooler. Makes for a nice cut. I liked how you pointed out that juxtaposition of the water rushing out of this uh, container and then like Joel on the canoe and stuff. Yeah, that brings us to the final scene, which is. I, it's all right, I guess. <laughs> uh, well, because I, I mean, I'm, I'm like dogging on the episode. I just, it's very paint by the numbers. So I'm not getting, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not getting anything added to the characters at this point. But the way it ends is that Barbara goes to K Bear and she apologizes to Maurice. And before she leaves, she says, Hey, I'm sorry about getting out of line, but maybe next time we can have coffee and just talk. And Maurice is like, yeah, sure. Yeah. Like, I would like that. Just like, like, I get what's happening on the resolution right here. Mm -hmm. But like, if you want to get to this resolution, do you really need all of this middle part? (laughs) Like, how is this adding to it? What do you mean this, all this middle part? Like this entire water plot line. (laughs) Like, how does that make them see their relationship? Oh, Because what's happening here is an outside external force is operating itself on these two characters. And now that you remove the influence, now they're like, oh, maybe I kind of liked you. So maybe we should try to rekindle the relationship or something like that. The, the thing that bugs me about it is that she says, maybe we can just talk. But it wasn't like communication was the issue. Yeah, Everything is being controlled, like I said, from an external force. It's not really their fault. Maybe this is just sort of like a reversal. Like, so in the episode when... Barbara is under the influence of Sicily water. She doesn't want to talk. She just wants to do it right here, right now. So maybe this is just to say like, okay, the status quo has been reestablished. Like now they're just going to talk instead of the the lust. That That's one way to read it. But, um, but I'm with you here as well, Charles. It's like, that doesn't I, seem like the right ending for this plot line or, or I don't know. I don't even know how you end this plot. Line. I, I, I would, I would buy what you're selling. <laughs> If we established early on that Maurice was still holding a torch yeah, for yeah. Officer Savansky, but he's it's not. not really. Because even when she comes on to him the first time, he's like, whoa, I thought we were estranged. Like, I was totally cool. <laughs> I was okay with where we were at. <laughs> so it wasn't like one of those I walked a mile in your shoes type of thing. Yeah. So that's why I felt like when I was watching it conclude, I was thinking to myself, like, what is this doing for the characters? Mm-hmm. Like, that we required... 45 minutes to get through. Well, the truth is it's, I guess it's not for the characters. It's for the plot. You know, they wrote this as like a, this could be a fun plot for the show. And maybe that's why, you know, it didn't tie strong enough to us. It didn't connect strongly with the characters and bring them to 
new positions, new thoughts, new ideas. Um, yeah, it just wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't strong enough. Didn't connect. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I know that I've been harshing on this episode the entire time, but it's not because of like the subject matter or anything like that. Like, yeah, I genuinely feel it's just like, it was a writing problem, not necessarily like a where we are today problem. All right, Charles, for this episode, we ask fans of Northern Exposure, fans of the podcast to give us their thoughts on this episode of Northern Exposure. It's called Horns, season six, episode 13, the 100th episode of Northern Exposure. And uh, yeah, we put a call out on Twitter, Facebook. We got some responses on Facebook and also a lot of feedback in the Facebook group Club NX. So normally, you know, we'll ask someone outside of the podcast to give their thoughts on the episode and then we'll respond. So, Charles, let's go ahead and read some of these uh, comments on Facebook and see if we can respond. All right. First commenter is Cup of Joe with Smokey Bernstein, here to comment about Joel's appearance this episode and saying that he bears a little resemblance to Jeremiah Johnson, the first film he ever saw in theater. Slept through Fiddler on the Roof, so that doesn't count. It was a huge influence on me as a youngin. I can connect the dots from the film all the way to Northern Exposure for me. Great meme, too. But not my favorite episode either. Yeah, I remember in the episode, Maggie is looking over Joel and sort of uh, complimenting him on his look, kind of a rugged Jeremiah Johnson look. And yeah, Charles, I can't remember. It's, I mean, my only knowledge of Jeremiah Johnson is through that that reaction gif, that meme. But I wonder, uh, I guess maybe I should check that movie out. Yeah, definitely. Like, <laughs> it's got to have some sort of like, cultural appeal for it to even be turned into a meme in the first right. place because someone would have to have watched it <laughs> yeah all right leading us next is nate crawford who says i remember this being the point in the series at which entertainment weekly essentially said the show was over and done with and had long ago grown twee what do you think twee means oh man that's such a good question i didn't even know i thought that was a more like contemporary term Let's see. Twee is an adjective, I guess, from the British. Excessively or affectedly quaint, pretty or sentimental. Um, I mean, I, I'm not saying that this is a brand new word or anything. I just thought it was maybe more uh, in use today that I've, mm -hmm. I've heard the term twee. But I tried to look for this Entertainment Weekly article, just Google search Entertainment Weekly Northern Exposure Twee or just Entertainment Weekly Northern Exposure. Um, and I don't doubt it. I'm sure there was starting to be some negative press for Northern Exposure at this point. But uh, yeah, maybe this is the, uh, it seems like, is this the moment in season six where it all starts to fall apart? Charles, was there a moment before this where you were like, uh, like scratching your head? I mean, season six uh, has been ups and downs so far, but definitely more ups and downs than season five. You know, bringing this up, I actually think it's really curious because now we have the internet. You can get instant feedback on whether or not your show is a success or, you know, fans hated mm -hmm. it. But back then, I, I guess you like you have the dials, you, you can check the ratings, but like that didn't essentially tell you, you know, the quality of the show. So you, you kind of had to wait till like next week for like the newspaper article to publish it mm -hmm. or like next month for the entertainment weekly to be, Oh, wait, wait, it says weekly. So I guess it's weekly. It's not yeah. monthly. <laughs> <Yes>. but, <laughs> entertainment <okay>. monthly. Yeah. <laughs> well, you would yeah. wait for entertainment weekly to come out and be like, yo, this sucked. <laughs> so then you got like the feedback a week later. So yeah. 
Yeah, I, I don't know which one's better. Yeah, I guess like also like the water cooler conversation at work, you know, like after, well, now it's Wednesday night. So after Wednesday, like Thursday morning at uh, around the coffee pot at work in the office, talking about Northern Exposure, how it's uh, how it's fallen apart, how it's grown twee. Mm-hmm. All right, next up, we have Jeffrey Berger. He says, I need that logo on a t-shirt or a cap. And Barbara Goins chimes in and says, Jeffrey Berger, great idea. Would love to have that on a t-shirt. Yeah, they're referring to the Sicily water. This is We posted this uh, on Facebook as a call to action, and it was a picture of Maurice with a hard hat on. The hard hat has the Sicily water logo, which is, uh, I don't know, like, is that Times New Roman? It's like sort of this... It's green colored uh, lettering, and it's on top of this hourglass uh, design, just image, like a clip art hourglass. The top chamber of this hourglass is like a mountain, and the bottom chamber is dripping water. It says, the taste of time. I think it says some stuff underneath that too, but I I can't really blow that image up. Um, But you also see this at the beginning of the episode when we're kind of like entering into the water plant, I guess you would call it. And like, it's at night and it's like very mysterious lighting. And that's when uh, uh, that the Frenchman guy is like freaking out, calling his wife on the phone and crying. Uh, very mysterious, very, very X-Files sort of opening. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that would be a fun little memento to have. I think uh, we'll get to it in a second, but someone had commented that they actually had like bought uh, from an auction, maybe from one of the Moose Fest days or something, an actual Sicily water water bottle. What? Prop. So we'll get to that, I guess, in a second when we get to That's that. That's so uh, cool. Yeah. So it exists out there. Okay. Well, up next is Lewis Hudson, who says, I was so upset with this episode. It was supposed to be a pivotal episode when Joel gets released from his contract, but instead, the entire episode is so unwatchable that you forget that Joel was no longer contractually obligated to Alaska. Northern Exposure is such a great show. How could it come to this kind of script? Yeah, that's something I I kind of, I don't know if we mentioned it, but it's a really good point how like the episode begins with Joel getting out of this contract. And as you're watching the episode, you kind of forget that. Lois kind of pointed that out. You forget that Joel is no longer contractually obligated to Alaska. We get this whole plot line about tapes. Like Shelly is keeping these tapes from Joel. And I think we did comment on this, Charles. I was like, I don't want this episode to be about tapes. Like, can this be about Joel and like his decision to go back to New York or to stay in Sicily? Please, like, what's happening? Yeah, I agree. I think it they really whiffed it on there. And it's been a few weeks since we talked about this episode. We're coming in mm-hmm. from the future, but I still distinctly remember saying that we can dump one of the plot lines, you know, and have Joel and Dr. Phil Capra work together mm-hmm. in order to get to the bottom of this so that you can get a best of both worlds, so you can have a little passing of the torch. You know, another one. I, I, I know they had the golf one, but, you know, you can have two. Right. And you know what? Actually, that kind of segues perfectly into another comment uh, later. Cup of Joe with Smokey Bernstein had did comment back later on another post saying that he was listening to the second half of the pod while on the train to Paris drinking San Pellegrino, not Perrier. It's a picture of <laughs> him holding San Pellegrino, I guess, his view from the train in the background. And he said, I totally agree about how Joel and Phil could have had a Flintstones meets Jetsons moment 
part de, which I'm guessing means like, you know, they could have uh, realigned again, like like you're talking about, like in that episode, um, I believe it was real politic, but the one where like they go golfing. But yeah, there was even, we commented on this, Charles, there's a scene where Phil goes to meet Maurice at the brick. Joel is also at the brick at the same time in the same scene. You know, it's like, would Phil not go walk up to Joel? And I think you had suggested, Charles, it's like, Phil is trying to figure out what's going on with the water. Why not enlist another, you know, medical mind, you know, Joel here? Right, right, right. Okay. Well, I'm going to go ahead and pivot us to uh, some of the comments we got in Club and X because we got a bunch there. Actually, I think... I don't know who the first was to comment, but I think the first one that I read after posting on Facebook was from Darren Mitchell. Uh, We asked the question, what are your thoughts on the 100th episode of Northern Exposure? Horns. Like, do you remember this episode, Horns? What are your thoughts on it? Darren Mitchell responded, sorry, I'm too emotional to comment. And then like an emoji of like a laughing face. (laughs) So uh, yeah, you know, right off the bat, It seems like even fans of the show are uh, a little upset with this episode. Uh, But we do have a um, flip side point of view from Quentin Paul Kuntz. Uh, Quentin said they loved it. Maurice was so funny with Barbara. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I don't know how you felt, but I definitely enjoyed having Maurice and Barbara together in this episode. I think we also commented, it was like, uh, at the end of the day, it was kind of in service to this kind of cheesy water, you know, the Sicily syndrome plot line. I'm happy to have an episode with Maurice and Barbara. It, it, it could have been better. Um, let's see. Steve Bengal says, always thought Maurice, the entrepreneur, should have sold the water as an aphrodisiac. Now, there are episodes where Maurice was like trying to market um, like the, do you remember it was like the Midnight Sun episode, I think? It was one of those episodes where it was always sunny. And Maurice was trying to use that to like market a resort saying that you could come to Sicily, get like this 24 seven sunlight and it does wonders for your like seasonal depression, but they didn't call it that. Do you remember what they called it back in the nineties in that, in that episode? It was like a seasonal affective sin disorder. Is it sad? Yeah. Sad maybe. That Mm -hmm. sounds right. Yeah. So they had referred to it as that. And let's see next Richard Rafferty posted for ages I've thought the water storyline felt like a repurposed X-Files plot. Glad I'm not alone. Definitely. I mean, we talked about that. The introduction of that storyline with um, Bertrand, I believe his name was. The, I, we're calling him the water engineer. With him like in this very dark, dramatic lit room, crying on the phone. There's something in the water, something terribly wrong. Even maybe, well, I guess the end of that plot line was sort of like a weird, goofy sort of sci-fi solution with the idea that uh, this water, God, I'm still thinking about, I don't know if you remember this, Charles, but the line that Phil says about like how the water killed the dinosaurs. Maybe it wasn't a asteroid that killed the dinosaurs. Yeah. Maybe it was like them having too much sex. They drank water and they sexed each other to death or something. This still doesn't, I I haven't pieced it together weeks from that episode because like this water comes from the earth. It's natural. Like it's as natural as you're going to get. What do you mean? Like the natural cause. It's too pure, Charles. That's what they were saying, right? It's like, 
It's so pure I, that it has to metabolize some weird way in our body. I don't, I don't know. It's such a weird way. Because I can get it if you say it like, you know, on like purebred dogs, it's actually kind of a problem because they're susceptible mm. to like diseases. Same way with crops. Like yeah. if you don't diversify the crops, they're susceptible to like a certain type of pest. Like a breed of banana was like completely wiped out by this one insect because they all shared the same thing. Mm-hmm. I can get the argument coming from that place. But, uh, you know, when you, when you compare it to water though, <laughs> like your imagery of water – is almost always pure and rebirth. It's it's good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's supposed to be good. Uh, let's keep going. Eric Bluestein says, as episodes go, it was not one of the best, not one of the worst. But Diane Delano was fantastic. That's the actress who plays Szymanski. And you know, I gotta say, I think we've had a few Szymanski episodes like in... Gosh, I could be wrong, but I feel like season four, season five, where Szymanski comes in for just like a moment here or there and is purely just serving as law enforcement. We don't really get to see her character or more interactions with other characters. I'm thinking of probably episodes where she like comes in to try to find Cal Ingraham or this or that. And she's, you know, her storyline starts and ends, or her, her effectiveness in the episode's begins and ends with just her being like, all right, where's Cal? Like, we got to find Cal. And that's about it. So I am glad to see that there's a little more happening with Szymanski um, because when she's first introduced earlier on in the series, definitely feels like a, you know, a larger character, you know, still a guest star, but someone who, you know, has a little more dimension there. And then it kind of became something where she either doesn't show up for like large spans of episodes and then when she finally does, it's, you know, very brief and not really any connection with Maurice a lot of times. This is just from my memory. All right. Ivan Kovac. I love that episode. Simple and done. So. All right. Yeah. I mean, like we're kind of, we're being very critical of this episode, but I figured we should reach out and see like, what do people think? Is it universally panned or are there some fans out there? We got Ivan Kovac who loved the episode. And I think we just got two more. So Chris Valley from Club NX says, haven't watched this one in years because of its cringeworthy, reductive gender stereotypes, contradictory to what made NX so great in the first place. Melvoin really dropped the ball with this one. Melvoin being the screenwriter for this. And yeah, Charles, I think you talked a lot about this in our podcast, where at first it was, you were just kind of confused and then it it didn't like make sense. And then finally, when you figured out maybe what the writer was doing here is like, wait, this is like kind of almost offensive here. Yeah. Well, like I wouldn't necessarily say offensive, but more so that like, I didn't realize the little flip that they were trying to do of, you know, like certain uh, traits from one gender being flipped to another gender and stuff like that. I didn't realize that until like, uh, gosh, like oh, at least over half the episode. And then I was like, oh, that's what they're, that's what they're trying to do. Yeah. And it's like, that's what they're doing. But then it's also like, I liked how you pointed out that these traits that they're trying to label as one gender or the other, it's not like these traits should be exclusive to the separate genders. Like you should try to embody all of these traits. Like th- this is just like good to be like, this is a good character trait to have. Right, right. Like, you know, a kindness, assertiveness, uh, thoughtfulness, <laughs> yeah. um, standing up for yourself. Like, that's not like a gendered thing. That's every, that's a human thing. Yeah. And this episode kind of tries to split that down the gender line and, you know, have 
the men act one way and the women act another way. Yeah. Anyway, uh, let's get to our very last comment here. And I did promise talking about that plastic, the water bottle prop. So let's see. Linda Kristen Ty said at Moose Fest 2010, I bid on and won an empty plastic water bottle prop with the Minifield water label on it. Authentication paper stated it was found behind the seat of Maggie's prop plane. So they just had this, this, <laughs> this bottle was just sitting there for years. Uh, I think I paid $40 for it. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. That is not that bad. No, that not is, at all for a prop. That's amazing. Yeah. What is that? Like four bottles of a, what, what is that? Um, <laughs> what's that? Fiji? Uh, Fiji? Yeah, that's like four bottles of Fiji water. <laughs> Uh, she said, people on my bus ride back to Oregon looked at me weird because I was clutching this empty plastic water bottle, grinning like it was some magic heirloom. Um, and then uh, there's some more comments here. It seems like uh, Mary McAllister says that if my memory serves right, you gave it to me a few years ago and I still have it above the shelf in my hall. So trading it off with other friends and other fans of the show. Let's see. Christy Osborne Hopper replies, I have one too. So she also has one of these props. She says, my daughters say they want it listed in my will so that <laughs> they can inherit this water bottle. Amazing. Uh, yeah. I mean, Charles, if there was a prop from the show that you could, that you could claim, do you have any, uh, do you have any favorite props? Oh, that's a good question. I'm going to think, think of one now. Yeah. I mean, I've already mentioned this on the podcast. Uh, I don't necessarily need the prop from the show. But every once in a while on eBay, they will list the calendar. It's like the Clico Club calendar that's on the back of Joel's door in his in his uh, office. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like oh, the Eskimos yeah, yeah, yeah. Clico Club. Mm -hmm. You can still find those on eBay every once in a while. That would be a fun prop to have because it doesn't. It's not like a moose, and it's not like it doesn't say Northern Exposure. So if someone like sees it and they recognize what it is, then it's like, okay, true fans would know that this Clico Club calendar is in like almost every episode of Northern Exposure simply because it's like a key feature of this set that is in a lot of episodes. You know, I wouldn't mind having some of the outfits that they wore. Mm, Joel yeah. has that very distinctive, uh, it's like that red tie of his. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's on one of the DVD covers where it says like, welcome to Sicily, Alaska. But it's one where it has uh, some squares on it. They're blue and it's going up against a red tie. He wears mm. that in a lot of episodes. Maurice's coat, the one that's... Uh, like the leather one, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, I almost said it like, it kind of looks like the one that like Bane wears and like Batman, <laughs> like the Dark, Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> the ba Maurice's Bane coat? I yeah. love it. <laughs> Yeah, you know, we talked a lot about the fashions and the uh, outfits in Northern Exposure on our Patreon. You can visit it at patreon.com slash Northern Overexposure Podcast. Every month, once a month, we release a bonus episode. And we've done it twice, actually, where we talked about the fashions of season one and season two. And I think we also did season three, if I'm not mistaken. We've done a lot of, we, we just like selected a lot of looks you can go onto the Patreon and see for free. You don't have to be a member of our, you don't have to be a patron. You can just see all of the uh, stills that we grabbed of the different outfits. Um, but if you want to listen to us talk about these outfits and some of our favorite looks from the show, uh, you can support the podcast on Patreon. But Charles, I think that does it for all of our comments here. 
And we want to thank everyone for commenting online because, as you know, we did not have a guest for this episode. So thanks to all of you fans, listeners, for stepping up and telling us your thoughts about this episode. Charles, we're going to be talking next week about episode 14 of season six. It's called The Mommy's Curse. And we actually get to interview Michael Lang. Once again, the director, Michael Lang, who directed next week's episode. Yeah, woo-woo! It was such a great (laughs) interview. Yeah, pretty excited to share that with you guys. And uh, we'll be talking all about that next week. So Charles, I'll see you then. All right, I'll see you then. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to B-Ball Y'all for the podcast artwork, and thanks to you for listening. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.